and welcome to Regen. We're so glad to have you with us on this Mother's Day. Uh, we want to wish um, just all the women here a happy Mother's Day for those of you who um, have your own children and then for those of you who spiritual, um, spiritually mother or aunt or sister, other women and um, men as well. We're just so thankful for you. So we hope today that you find yourselves interrupted by the love and grace of Jesus um, as we worship together. Um, if it's your first time here, we're so glad to have you. Welcome. Um, we have a gift for you in the back and we'd love to connect with you. Um, if it's your first time here, we'd love to connect with you. If you've been here multiple times, we would still love to connect with you. Um, you fill out the hate card in the back and you'll get our weekly emails, which will let you know just what's going on, what our events are, um, and when those are happening. So we'd invite you to do that as well. Um, just a quick note on our check-ins. Um, if you want to use the hashtag RegenGives on your social media check-ins, that will um, generate a donation to Bella Women's Center uh, for April, May, and June. Um, we'll be donating to Bella. And then... Um, Coming up on Thursday, May 30th at 7 p.m., we're going to be having our night of prayer. And so we'd invite you, if that's something that you want to be a part of, to come. We're going to spend some time praying individually, corporately, and some time in worship. Um, and it's just a great opportunity to come and be in the Father's presence together. So we'd invite you to that. And then um, we are going to be having our next feast uh, Sunday, June 2nd at the Bylers in Cortland. So there'll be more information coming about that. But if you kind of want to just put that, save the date on your calendar, uh, that'll be Sunday, June 2nd. So I'm going to invite Zach to come up and pray for our offering, and we'll continue worshiping. Good morning, guys. I'll be passing this around. Um, if you haven't given here before, uh, you can use the little envelopes in the program you have, or you can go to uh, myregen.org. I always forget it because it's like the newer one. Um, just go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes, pray with me, please. Father, you are so different. You are um, the one that can just meet every single one of us here today in different places, um, but yet all at the same time. We're really grateful for that. We're really grateful for the individual attention that you give us. And um, we're just so happy to be able to give ourselves to you, Lord. So I just pray that this church family and um, the extended family that we will go out and, and be with today, um, that we can just find it in ourselves to just offer everything that we have to you um, so that we can come to fully know your love and your grace and your truth in a way that, that is new to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God, thank you that you are a God who is with us. Thank you that you delight in being near to us. Jesus, uh, I pray that you would be filling this place with yourself today, that we would be encouraged, that we would be equipped in the midst of our waiting and worshiping and receiving, that we would have more of you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Kids are going to go back with uh, Kayla and Jordan. There they are. Um, oh, that's all right. Just turn around. There's we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel, which is in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel. I laughed, at, people at the last campus laughed when I said this, we will be in 1 and 2 Samuel for two years. Um, I know, it makes people nervous for some reason, I don't get it. Um, we'll, do, we'll break occasionally to talk about some other things, but 
kind of the core of what we'll be processing through is First and Second Samuel. So we're going to be in First Samuel chapter one today. First Samuel chapter one, which begins like this: There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephratite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other Peninnah, and Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her to grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. In other words, as often as Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, Peninnah used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I want you to picture a family. Picture a family gathered around a holiday meal like Thanksgiving were Mother's Day, for example. The adults are sitting around the table, they are sipping coffee, they are eating dessert, they are laughing as they share memories and stories of years gone by. There's more laughter coming from the children who run around the table and who play together in the next room. Uh, There's laughter, there's giggling, there's sounds of joy in the air. It's it's a good day, except, except for one relative who has spent the entire meal crying uncontrollably. Uncontrollably for this entire time. She hasn't tasted the cake that somebody made. She hasn't tasted dessert. No, in fact, her meal is still sitting on the plate in front of her, untouched. In between the laughter and the sounds of the children, when there's a a small pause, you hear her weeping. As the meal goes on, this dynamic, the crying relative at the one end that you're trying not to look at because it's so awkward, and and the laughter and joy at this end of the table, this dynamic is just getting worse and worse. It's getting so tense, so awkward, you could cut it with a knife. So it, it gets so awkward that when you happen to glance down and see that that relative has left the table, you actually feel a sense of relief. That relative weeping at the end of the table is Hannah. Her name means grace, but she has not been graced in a long time. She weeps instead of celebrates as she once again comes face to face with her barrenness. Two times, the text says, twice, for the Lord had closed her womb. This is Hannah, forced to join her husband Elkanah and his other wife Peninnah on their yearly journey to Shiloh for the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a major holiday in the life of Israel. It's on par with Thanksgiving here in the American imagination. But for Hannah, like for many women, uh, holidays are simply a reminder of what is not or what might have been. Hannah cries because she has been barren her whole life. 
The shame that women feel as they walk the road of infertility in our culture is amplified in the culture of the ancient Near East where a woman's only real use was to bear children. The fear that women feel in our culture as they walk the road of infertility is amplified in the culture of the ancient Near East where a woman's children were her security net. And as Hannah sits at the feast table, her husband offers her a double portion of meat. They they go to the temple, or the, excuse me, the tabernacle. They make a sacrifice. The priest takes some meat for himself. They receive a portion of the meat to eat. There's only probably two or three times an ancient Israelite ate meat during the year, and this is one of them. And so Elkanah distributes a portion of the meat to his wife Peninnah and every one of her children. He offers a double portion to his wife Hannah, saying, am I not more to you than ten sons? It turns out that for thousands of years we have been saying stupid things to people dealing with infertility and barrenness. (laughs) This stupid attempt to comfort her probably sounds familiar if you've ever walked that road. Across the table, Peninnah, his other wife, makes eyes jeering at her, mocking her. And she can't take it anymore. So in her distress, in her vexation, Hannah slips away from the table. And in verse 9, we find out where she goes and why. It says in verse 9, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Hannah gets up from the table. She slips away to the tabernacle. She slips away to the presence of the Lord, to the place of worship, because Hannah is at the breaking point. I mean, the text of 1 Samuel 1 is littered with glimpses into the inner life of Hannah. She weeps at the table. Her heart is sad. She is deeply distressed. She weeps bitterly. In verse 16, she declares that she is in great anxiety and vexation. She is vexed. That's a great word, isn't it? Have you ever been vexed? Have you ever been so at the end of of your rope, so at the bottom of your barrel that the only real word that you have to describe it is something that the British use all the time? Have you ever been vexed? Hannah is vexed, and in her vexation, she worships the Lord. In her vexation, she goes to the Lord and worship. But notice how she worships. What we'll see as we go through more and more of 1 Samuel is how the Hebrew writer does a lot with a little. So I want us to look closely at verses 10 and 11 to see what happens here. I, I don't want us to miss, first of all, the prayer's form. She prays, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. This is a lament. We unpacked laments a few weeks ago in our, in our series on doubt. Lament is the prayer of a person in disorientation. And boy, is Hannah disoriented. And so, so she uses these strong words that we've come to associate with lament psalms. Look on your servant, remember me, and, and forget me not. Hannah is engaged in this powerful, personal, up-in-God's-face kind of worship with the Lord. But notice how her prayer is bracketed. Is On either side, there is a vow. It says, she vowed a vow. Well, what was the vow that she vowed? She says, if you give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. That's an obscure reference if you're not used to the Old Testament. What she's promising is to make her unborn child a Nazarite, 
Samson is a Nazarite in the book of Judges. A Nazarite is usually, almost, well, always until this moment, an adult male who takes a vow for a period of time to do three things. One, to avoid dead bodies, which, I don't know, sounds like a good idea generally. Um, two, to avoid the fruit of the vine, no alcohol consumption. Three, to let no razor touch his head or his beard. What is so unique about Hannah's vow is that she is making, she is offering her unborn child to the Lord as a Nazarite, not for a little while, but for his whole life. Hannah offers her unborn child to the Lord as a permanent Nazarite, as if to say that his whole life, his life will be wholly and exclusively the Lord's. That is her vow. But most importantly, notice to whom she addresses her prayer, the Lord of hosts. This is the second time, that, that, here in 1 Samuel, the first times we ever see God called this, the Lord of hosts. Earlier in verse 3, it says, Elkanah's family went to worship the Lord of hosts. Now Hannah addresses her prayer to the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. It's the first time that someone in scripture prays to Yahweh Sabaoth. It'll appear 10 more times or so in First and Second Samuel. It appears a lot in the Psalms. I don't want you to miss the significance of what this particular name of God means. The hosts of which God is the Lord, the hosts were armies which, I have this as a quote, Dan, the hosts were armies which, belonging as they did to the great creator God, were composed of angels, stars, and men. The stars piece will catch you off guard, uh, off guard but I, if, if they, that does, I would encourage you to listen to the Bible Project's God podcast series. Um, and they talk about uh, stars and how they play into the biblical imagination. Um, interesting. They were composed of angels, stars, and men. The name expresses the infinite resources and power which are at the disposal of God as he works on behalf of his people. Hannah names the Lord, Lord of hosts. She goes to the Lord, not as her healer. She goes to the Lord, not as her protector, not as her guide. She goes to the Lord as one who has infinite resources that he can bring to bear in the midst of her situation. Hannah goes into the tabernacle, into the presence of the Lord, and she passionately, almost aggressively gets in God's face. She vows a vow, and it turns out she's not alone when this is happening. It turns out she's not alone when this is happening. Look at verses 12 through 14. It says, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. This is a, this is a unique way to pray in the Old Testament. This is like a common way for people to pray, right? Like, we'll, in a few minutes, we're going to have a time for you to do that. And a lot of you are going to sit quietly. Maybe your mouths will move. If we were ancient Israelites, everybody would be standing with their hands raised, which is a footnote is to tell you that, like, raising your hands in worship is not a charismatic, new-agey thing. That has been around since biblical times. Hannah, though, she does not stand. She does not raise her hand. She does not go to Eli to make a prayer for her. She is on her knees before the Lord, and she is so desperate that she prays silently, but with her mouth. And Eli, the priest, is observing this. Verse 14 says, Eli said to her, oh, it says in verse 13, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. One commentator notes, this is the state of Israel's worship at this time, that he is so used to seeing drunk people that he just assumes this is what's happening. 
Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long are you going to go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. As if to say, I've not been pouring wine, I'm pouring out my soul. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Notice this, Hannah, an infertile, childless woman, is more intimate in her relationship with the Lord than Eli, who is the spiritual icon of his generation. Eli is the priest of Israel. Ironically, though, Eli, and we're going to get back to this in a few weeks, Eli is consistently depicted by the narrator as spiritually blind and inert. We will find later that Eli's eyes are blind, but that's just a mirror of what's going on inside of his soul. Here is a man who watches lips instead of perceiving hearts. Here's a man who judges profound spirituality to actually just be drunkenness. We'll return to Eli, like I said, in a few weeks, but don't miss how Eli totally whiffs this moment. He has this woman who is absolutely desperate to hear from the Lord. Absolutely desperate to hear from the Lord, and then he accuses her of drunkenness. She defends herself well, and then what happens is, is after she defends herself, Eli actually does his job. Uh, Isn't there a phrase, a broken clock is right twice a day? Look at verse 17. Eli answers after she says, hey, I'm a woman in great anxiety and vexation. He says, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. The woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Whether Eli is prophesying on accident or just expressing a hope, we're not sure. What we do know is that Hannah leaves the tabernacle. Her face is no longer sad. She eats. Nothing about her external circumstances have changed. Something in her heart has been reoriented. That's the very core of lament, right? Lament moves from orientation to disorientation to reorientation of the heart without perhaps any external circumstance changing. And she leaves, and she leaves to wait. She leaves to wait. Today is Mother's Day, and it is the first we have celebrated with you, our spiritual family, since 2016. Our first of three miscarriages was just days before Mother's Day of 2016, and so we stopped coming to church. It was too hard. It was too painful. It was too sad. We felt like we would be robbing authentic joy from people who were experiencing, many of you, your first Mother's Day, and here's us up front crying our way through. So conveniently timed weddings in California and trips to Indiana worked in our favor. And this experience has opened me up to the reality that Mother's Day can actually be more difficult for people than it can be a celebration. A special day is set aside for us to celebrate our moms. By the way, I don't know if you know this, the woman who founded Mother's Day in our country after it became a national holiday spent the rest of her life fighting to make Congress take it back because merchants saw their opportunity to turn it into a a make a lot of money, and she didn't like that. Interesting. We set aside this special day to celebrate our moms, but for many, it becomes the reminder of another reality. It becomes the reminder of the loss, the distance, the divorce, the death, 
the estrangement, the sickness, the infertility. For a lot of people, Mother's Day is a reminder of what might have been or what never will be. We wanted to create a space for you like the space that Hannah finds in 1 Samuel 1. In her distress and vexation, Hannah worships the Lord. She goes to the Lord's presence. And so if you, if you are bringing sadness into the room, and it doesn't have to be like, I don't know how to describe it, mother-related sadness only. But if you're bringing sadness in the room, we wanted to create some space for you to be with God. So um, we have, uh, the team has a song that they've put together just for a minute for us to be with the Lord. And I want to invite you to just be with Jesus, um, to pray, to reflect. And, and maybe this isn't a sad day for you. Um, it is for people in our family and in our community. So let's be praying for them. Um, but to kind of set the tone for that, I have, I have a prayer by a guy named Walter Brueggemann. It's a prayer entitled, Our Despairing Hope. Among us are shriveled women who in despair do not eat, who in powerlessness weep downcast, whose lips tremble and who barely dare ask otherwise. We, in our compassion and sensitivity, stand alongside those shriveled women who in despair do not eat, who in powerlessness weep downcast, who lips tremble, whose lips tremble and who barely dare ask otherwise. Down deep in all candor and honesty, we ourselves are among those shriveled women. We also in despair do not eat. We also in powerlessness weep downcast. We also have lips that tremble, and we also barely dare ask otherwise. They wait, and we wait alongside them. We wait. And you sometimes speak shalom, and the world is made new. This day, in our despairing hope, grant that we, along with all shriveled women, may, before sundown, eat and praise and depart in peace. But for now, we wait. Amen. Be with the Lord. They rose early in the next morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked of him from the Lord. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. In her vexation, Hannah worshipped the Lord of hosts, who is neither faithless nor forgetful. In her vexation, Hannah worshipped the Lord of hosts, who is neither faithless nor forgetful. We, we see this so clearly in verses 19 and 20, when the text clearly says, the Lord remembered her. And she conceived a son. His name is Samuel. Sounds just like the Hebrews' words, I have asked of him from the Lord. And this word remember makes us uncomfortable. 
It makes us uncomfortable because it feels like and sounds like the Lord was rifling through the papers on his desk, happened upon a post-it note that said, don't forget to give Hannah a kid, and he snapped his fingers and made it happen. It makes it sound like the Lord has trouble keeping track of everything going on in the world. That is not what the word remembered means when it's used this way in the Old Testament. To be clear, the Lord couldn't forget you if he tried. Psalm 33, 8. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. So what does it mean when the Bible says that God remembered? It's used a handful of times throughout the Old Testament. One place is in Exodus. The people of Israel are enslaved by Pharaoh, and they cry out to the Lord, and the text says, and the Lord remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not that he forgot about them. The idea of remember means that God is poised and ready to jump into action. It means that the fullness of time has come, that the circumstances have aligned themselves under his providential gaze in such a way that he is ready to move. It is about the unfolding of his purpose. It is about God taking action. And in her vexation, Hannah worships the Lord of hosts, who is neither faithless nor forgetful. She receives her son Samuel, and she keeps him by her side for four or five or six years until she weaned him. It took about four or five or six years to wean a child at this time in history. And if you don't think that Hannah savored every middle-of-the-night feeding, every poopy diaper or whatever they used 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, a long, long time ago, if you don't think the puke, Steph, the other day, Jack coughed particularly hard and it just made him puke everything up while she was upstairs putting him to sleep. So she comes down the stairs and I mean, literally is just covered. Uh, Happy Mother's Day to you, babe. If you don't think that Hannah savored every single one of those moments because she knew when she brought him back to the tabernacle, that was the last time he would be in her home. And so when he reaches the age of being weaned, and it comes time for the Feast of Tabernacles. She joins Elkanah and Peninnah and their children to fulfill her vow. Look at verses 24 through 28. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah, a flower, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. A better translation is the child was but a lad. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. I mean, Hannah arrives for the Feast of Tabernacles in a way that she's never shown up at Shiloh before. There's a spring in her step. There's a smile on her face. She has brought more than the law requires for just the Feast of Tabernacles. She's brought more than she required because she's ransoming her firstborn from the Lord, just like it says in the, in the law of Deuteronomy. Every firstborn son in the Old Testament belonged to the Lord. You ransomed him back. She ransoms, she brings all of this to ransom the child back, but she still gives him to the Lord and leaves him in the tabernacle for his whole life as she declares in her testimony to Eli. Can you see her pushing through the crowd to find this aged, blind priest, Eli, to come to him and say, look, 
I'm the woman who was standing here all those years ago making a petition to the Lord. I asked the Lord of this child. For this child I prayed, and he heard my petition. And then she says something absolutely astounding. She says, therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. I, I started studying First Samuel last summer to be ready for this. I tell you that in part because I think it, it comes across sometimes like all of this is in my head and I'm able to pull facts out. I knew nothing about the book of First and Second Samuel when I sat down to study this, other than like Samuel is a guy. David's in it. That's all I really knew. And when I read this verse, it cut me to the core. We were pregnant with Jack. And she says, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Can I suggest to you on Mother's Day, parents, this is the heart of faithful parenting. This is the heart of faithful parenting. I've been praying this verse over Jack a lot now, saying he is, he is lent to the Lord. He is not mine. He is the Lord's. By the way, there's great freedom in that. There's also tremendous responsibility because it's not about lending your kids only to good grades and lending your kids only to extracurriculars. It's about arranging your home and your life in such a way that this child grows up to love and serve and know Jesus for his whole life long or her whole life long. And some of you are still in the midst of that. I'm just beginning. I've been a parent for less than four months, and I'm very aware that this is very challenging. But this is the heart of it. I have lent him to the Lord for his whole life she says. And there's this really interesting little tag at the very end of the chapter. Six little words. It says, and he worshiped the Lord there. It's not on the screen. It says, he worshiped the Lord there. Now, some translations of this render it, she worshiped the Lord there, as if Hannah is worshiping the Lord. That's bogus. So it says, he worshiped the Lord there. Who is he? Is it Eli, the bumbling, fumbling priest? No. It is Samuel. Four, five, six years old, his first time at the tabernacle, worshiping the Lord. Samuel's birth comes at a pivotal time in Israel's history. In fact, the Hannah story is placed at the beginning of Samuel to act as a metaphor for their national life together. They are barren and hopeless. The period of the judges and the leadership of itinerant prophets has failed, and Israel is scattered across the land that they should have taken possession of under Moses and then Joshua. They are beleaguered by the Philistines. So the birth of Samuel signals a new era in Israel's history. Samuel will grow up to be one of Israel's best-remembered leaders. He will guide Israel through the uncertainty of monarchy, anointing not one but two kings, from his childhood, Samuel will show more spiritual depth and maturity than has been seen since Moses. Generations have passed. I'm really excited to tell you these stories of this boy who, upon arriving at the tabernacle for the first time, worships. In her vexation, Hannah worshipped the Lord of hosts who is neither faithless nor forgetful. And my friends, so do we. In our vexation, we worship the Lord of hosts who is neither faithless nor forgetful. Some of us are worshiping in the waiting, laying ourselves before the Lord of hosts. And today I want to remind you that the Lord has neither forgotten you nor has he become faithless to his promises. 
The eyes of the Lord are on his beloved. He could not forget you if he tried. It goes against the very nature of his character. And in fact, he is the Lord of hosts who brings infinite resources. The God who commands stars and angels brings infinite resources to bear on your behalf. Right now, in your waiting, God is aligning circumstances for your deliverance. God is aligning circumstances for your deliverance. Which means patiently enduring what is now. Right? That's hard. We've, we've walked that road. But he has not forgotten you, nor will he be faithless to his promises. Some of you are on the other side of the waiting. You're in the receiving Perhaps the emphasis of that line then is worship, that we worship the Lord who saw us and remembered us and acted on our behalf. The Lord of hosts is who we worship, church. And uh, the message translation renders that name the God of angel armies. You may be familiar of a song like that from Christian radio, and we're actually going to plot twist sing it this morning. Um, that God of infinite resources is right now in your waiting and in your receiving, endeavoring on your behalf for his glory and your good. He remembers you. And he is not faithless. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you, uh, you are worthy of our worship in both the waiting and in the receiving. You are worthy of our worship in the waiting and in the receiving. And so, my, for my friends who are waiting this morning, I pray that you would cause their strength to increase. You say that those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. For those who are in the receiving, uh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the strong man boast in his strength, nor the rich man boast in his riches. Let he or she that boasts boast in this, that they know the Lord. Everything we have is from your hand as the God who loves us and gives us all good things. And so um, for some of us, our prayer is in the waiting, and for some of us, our prayer is in the worship, but we pray, Lord, that you would even put before us today that you are on our side, you, Lord of hosts, God of angel armies, that you have not left us or forsaken us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm fond of reminding us that in the waiting, we are nourished and fed. In the waiting, we are nourished and fed. And, and he nourishes us with his own presence. Jesus, who offers himself to us. Jesus, who pours himself out for us. He offers to nourish us in our waiting. My prayer is this morning as we come to his table, we're reminded that he sees us and knows us and has not forgotten us. And the way we receive communion at Regen is real simple. You, someone will rip off a piece of the bread, you dip it in the cup, you taste and see that the Lord is good. We need that reminder. Um, so how about um, young Dan um, and Candace and Sarah Bacher, come help me out. It's a total of four. Yeah, okay. You be bread. You be brave. Okay, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup, that they might be for us the body and blood of Christ. That in the eating and drinking of them, we might be renewed and refreshed in our waiting. 
knowing that you will never forget us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Amen. Uh, the table's open. When you return to your seat, feel free to stay standing and sing with us. But come taste and see that the Lord is good. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. May the Lord's steadfast love be upon you in your waiting and in your worshiping. Love you so much. We'll see you next time.